We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call them now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. As well, check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. And of course, you can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button and also listen to old archive shows as well. Good morning, gentlemen. Great to see you all. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Scott. Going to start things off with our, uh, and you know, we've talked about this for a long time, people are nowhere ready for a rate increase when it comes. Yeah, they were barely ready for the last two. Yeah. You know, they, since, since the beginning of the year, the rates have gone from the prime rate, the prime lending rate's gone up by half percent mm-hmm. from 2.7 to 3.2. Mm-hmm. So in the last week in The Spectator and other papers for that matter, there was a big article about people are nowhere near prepared for this rate hike. Mm-hmm. And yes, survey says four in 10 Canadians fear they will be in financial trouble if there's any further rate hikes. 40% of Canadians. Well, that's not very good, is it? <sighs> um, already from the previous two, one third are feeling the effects of those. Mm-hmm. Okay. Seven out of 10 are gonna be more careful how they spend their money going forward. And they're already c- considering that, right. which isn't all really a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, f- this one really got me. 42% said they are $200 or less away from a financial insolvency. Wow. <laughs> oh my. I mean, you got hmm. a couple hundred bucks in the bank, anything less, they're, they're going down backwards. Yeah. Um, now, apparently this is good news because in, in June it was 44%. Mm-hmm. Still uh, incredible um, of the lack of planning of getting ready for this. And the debt levels right now are the highest they've ever been as of the second quarter of this year. Um, and basically what they do, they take the credit, household credit as a percentage of the household disposable income. And right now, um, it is at 167.8%. I remember when it was at 150, we thought it was high mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And now mm-hmm. it's 167. Well, I got this little chart in front of us here, Scott, and you can probably see where it hit 150 was yeah. ooh, about uh, 2010. There you go. Uh, wow. Actually, 2009. <laughs> wow. And it's gone, it's, it's, it's gone directly up. Actually, if you look from 1990 all the way to 2000, it was a slow increase. Then it had a huge increase from about 2001 rate to 2010, right up. And so it went from about 100, um, 100% of your income, actually about 110% to 167%. Now, the big interesting news out of this is if you compare it to the U.S., and I always thought we were pr- generally about the same as the U.S. Well, it turns out that the U.S., w- we were all following the same path until the crisis in 2008 mm-hmm. and 2009. And right away, they went from about 130 about 125 um, household debt to income ratio. And we were identical. We we're the exact same. Wow. And now they're at about 100. So they went down to 100 and we went to 160. Because it was tougher eight. there than it was here. They got a slap on the face and a yeah. wake up call. Yeah. yeah, they had it a lot tougher. And the one thing is makes it very different is our housing prices did not drop like theirs did. Yeah. So they were out borrowing still, but they were buying houses a lot cheaper, number one. Number two is it got harder to borrow. Mm-hmm. So they, they were having a more difficult time getting credit, so they just didn't borrow. And not a bad thing to do at times is just not get in this situation. So what happens when these go up to that 40%? And does that influence the Bank of Canada and their decision to raise it? Thinking, man, if we pump it up another point, mm-hmm. we're, there's going to be people without houses. And that's a very good point, Scott. Um, it very well could be that, 
And and there's two types of mortgages, for example. There's there's the fixed mortgage. Yeah. And we've been talking about that quite often in the show the last couple of years, that if you're worried, if you're getting into the housing market and you're kind of concerned that you wouldn't be able to withstand any rate increases, even if the rate's slightly higher now, yeah. get the five-year. Yeah. Lock yourself in. And you were getting five-year mortgages at about 2.2 to 2.4%. Yeah, they're almost the same as variable. Yeah, they mm-hmm. are, absolutely. And now they're pushing 3% now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the variable rates or the the um, line of credits, they're usually prime plus a quarter, prime plus a half. And I would suggest most of them, and these are line of credits that are based on the value of your house. So they're, they're using the house as collateral. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, you've gone from about uh, 2.9, to say 3.2% to 3.7% if you're prime, prime plus a half. Now those people that only had say $100,000 on their line of credit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not big these days. That means that they were paying $3,200 a year. Now they're paying $3,700 a year mm-hmm. just with the half percent increase, mm-hmm. which works out to about $42 more per month. Right. It's coming out of their bank account, going nowhere. It's literally like a speeding ticket, yeah. okay? <laughs> it's absolutely just, you're not getting anything for this $42, no. just an interest mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. And that's at 100,000. If it was 500,000, it would be $206 per month. Mm-hmm. And those people that have, and there are se- people with seven digit mortgages right now mm-hmm. with million dollar mortgages. And we've heard a lot of them, you know, say you go Burlington, Oakville out that direction. You know, even if you put 20% down, a $1.2 million house, you're still left with a million dollar mortgage. Yeah. Okay, yeah. approximately. And if you had a half percent increase, that's $416 more per month. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when people are already just trying to make it, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. you gotta, you, you had to put in some buffer. I know Andy had discussed this in an earlier show distinctly about creating that buffer. Well, you, you think about your, uh, you know, you're paying that extra four hundred and sixteen a month, but then in the back of your mind, you're going, okay, wait a minute, where does this actually end? Because mm-hmm. yeah, it bumped up by half a percent, four hundred and sixteen a month. Who's to say, because it's a variable rate, that it's not going to be another quarter, another Mm -hmm. quarter, Mm -hmm. another quarter. So now you're sort of into a little bit of a panic mode thinking, well, this 416 now, but could, you know, how much more can it be? Yeah. How much more can it be? And then the question, should I be locking in? And of course, now the conundrum is the locking in rate is higher than the current rate. Right. So you're, now you're locking into a higher payment. Yeah. And uh, so it's... It's important to have a lot of big, dis- a significant discussion, a financial discussion about what are your options when it comes to your your mortgage financing in a period of rising interest rates. Mm-hmm. And finally, the other piece, and we talked about this before too, but the rules for financing are changing as of January first as right. well yeah. for a new buyer. But uh, that twenty percent down, if uh, doesn't matter. Everybody has to qualify under the Bank of Canada five-year posted rate, which right now is four point eight nine percent, and that's whether they're insured or not. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, and so that's the kind of issues we're facing, and a lot of Canadians are facing. How do you how do you solve this problem? Yeah, really. Okay, you've already it's got like yourself it's out of your hands. It's like it's out of your hands. Yeah. You can't do anything <laughs> now, can you? Can you do something? You can do something. You can, and and you're not going to make me sell my house, are you? Well, that is. Kind of an option, okay. I wouldn't recommend that one though, right off the get-go. And because you got to live somewhere. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, a lot of these houses are, the starter houses have gone very expensive. Yeah. So you're not actually going to sell it and move to another starter house. You're just, yeah. you're not getting anywhere. No. However, first number one thing you should be seeing is a financial planner, mm-hmm. okay. Working through your disposable income. Go through a budget. Yeah. Okay, that 
that awful six six letter word but really what budget is is simply going over your lifestyle mm-hmm. it was interesting last week i have a client and i've known him for oh well over 25 years and decisions right now for him as he's getting close to retirement are should he get his a new snowmobile or not yes <laughs> <laughs> is there a decision <laughs> well when interest rates were lower and thing, you know it wasn't even a question mm-hmm. but now i'm thinking okay i want to really retire and it's it's amazing how people kind of priorities switch 10 years ago it was you know, a no-brainer yeah absolutely i don't care if i'm in debt for the next 10 working. years i am getting this snowmobile yeah. but now 10 years later i'm thinking mm-hmm. i only want to work five more years mm-hmm. or, or whatever it was in this case i think it was five to ten years must be some snowmobile <laughs> <laughs> And it says, maybe I, should I fix the track or shouldn't I? Yeah. You know, can we get away with one? I don't know how much my wife's driving hers anymore. Maybe I'll just use hers. And, and in a lot of cases, so this is a lifestyle, kind of a shot in the arm. What is the priorities of your lifestyle? What could you give up? Um, is it a snowmobile? Is it a fishing trip? Is it, one, is it a golf game? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry. I'm spouse. just being flip here. <laughs> Spouses are expensive. Don't <laughs> yeah, go there. Yeah, that's, <laughs> don't. that's not a good thing. <laughs> no, you're going backwards. There. You lose a spouse and you're going backwards <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, so work out your disposable income. And, and a very good example is I did go through this with, with a couple recently, and one was in between jobs. Mm-hmm. And we started going through the have, have-to-haves, such as food, shelter, car, insurance, etc., and want-to-haves. Yeah. And it's actually, and, and we created a ratio. And you can kind of figure out, you know, if, if you've got 50-50, that's a great ratio, half on fun and half on, on must-haves. But then there is wiggle room with that. Mm-hmm. But if you're already at, I'm, I'm spending 95% on half-dues and only 5% on fun. No fun. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. No. And you may have to actually downsize your lifestyle. Um, and, and with that, number two is cut back on spending. Um, one of the big ones I find is, is a very minor one, but it's coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I, knew you're, I knew we were going to say Eating that. out. Okay. Coffee, co- coffee and is you're the only one not drinking one today. That's yeah. just not fair. <laughs> let's, let's use another example. Uh, and I love coffee too. But for those that want to cut back, it, it's, a, it's been a, an absolute change of style of making your own versus, oh, I got to go get coffee. And people just gotten rid of their coffee makers. Yeah. Okay? But it's, it's like $100 a month. You got to yeah. get in your car to go and get the coffee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes. And, it, and so that's, that's, you know, the Starbucks and Tim Hortons have made a whole new trend there, but it doesn't mean we have to keep going that trend. If there's what, things you want to cut back on because of rising interest rates, pay off outstanding debts. Now, you may, that sounds easy, but you may want to start consolidating. And if you can consolidate your debts and possibly wrap them all into one mortgage, if you're able to, under the, maybe your house is appreciated enough now mm-hmm. that you can actually get one mortgage, forget the line of credit. If you were able to do this, you would probably save uh, up to a percent Mm-hmm. in wrapping that into a five-year mortgage, have one payment. Yeah. And that's another way to, again, cut that. With, and you wouldn't even notice. Then the nice thing with that, too, is you're actually paying something off. Yeah. Okay. Um, renting part of your house. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, that was just the norm. Yeah. It was absolutely the norm for forever. And I know people in Vancouver, this is certainly the norm for them. But renting a part of the house or making it livable in, in areas that you don't need, for example, uh, you know, a basement. Basement apartment, example. yeah. Uh, even... even uh, and you wouldn't even know. Yeah, uh, I know that's where I started going back 30 years ago. I was a duplex and mm-hmm. rented half and lived in half. But uh, I think all those people that are on their last 200 bucks, that they yeah. could be your next renter. Yeah, they that's right. Be. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, get that advice though. Don't just turn a blind eye and, and live in denial. Because I find that's probably the worst case. It, it, it's depressing. First of all, 
finances are probably the number one or number two, depending on which survey we've listened to, reason for divorce. Yeah. It adds a ton of stress, which adds years off your life. Talking about is the first step and before you dig too big of a hole. And last is uh, looking at items that you don't need. So some of the ones I've seen recently is getting a brand new car versus getting a used car. Yeah, you pay a lot at the, if you buy one right off the lot like that, as opposed, as soon as you drive it off the lot, it depreciates. It depreciates. Yeah. And I know there's some really good deals with 0% financing, yeah. but it doesn't matter about the financing. It's all about cash flow. You gotta right. look at your expenses. So even though it's shiny, it's 500 a month, maybe a nice car that's only 200 a month or 300 a month might be the way to go. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. You can ask a question there as well through the... Uh, uh, listener inquiry button. All right, talking about your personal residence exemption. Yes. What is this? Yes, the pre, your personable, personal residence uh, exemption. Right. <laughs> Principal residence <laughs> exemption. Easy for you to say, The Andy. PRE, yeah. I know. Have another sip uh, of coffee. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, that's the most expensive part of my, anyway, um, we were talking, you know, and it, the principal residence exemption is probably one of the most significant financial decisions you're going to make, particularly when it comes to couples that own two properties and at the same time. So if you just, if you're a couple that's only owned one home all your life, then pretty much guaranteed all of that's going to be exempt from taxation in right. terms of the growth. The only time it might be questionable is if you if you um, there's a significant period of time where you were renting it. Maybe right. you, maybe you went on a uh, a three year sailing trip and you rented it out for that three year period. You might lose the exemption during that period, right. depending on how much time you spent there. But basically, you know, if you own two properties, two personal use homes uh, during the same period, one of them is going to be subject to tax on capital gains, and your principal residence, it doesn't have to be designated until you sell it or you die. So this is all say, just... This really doesn't happen until you die, does exa- it? Well, or, or, or you sell, sell it. it. Right. So it's only, it only comes into play when you're selling your, a home or a property or you die. But you know, clearly, if you, if you apply the, the, the options properly, the principal residence exemption properly, you can save yourself a significant amount of tax. So one thing is just to sort of deci- de- define the rules around this and understand what we're playing with. And f- in, in terms of principal residence... The tax legislation defines it as an accommodation owned by a taxpayer, either solely or jointly, and is ordinarily inhabited by the taxpayer, or the taxpayer's spouse or common-law partner, or a former spouse or common-law partner, or a child. Okay? Whether the property was ordinarily inhabited, and that's an interesting phrase, in a given year is determined based on the facts of each case. But essentially, what they're looking to see is, and it can even be for a short period of time. So, example, it would be considered to be, you would be considered to have ordinarily inhabited your cottage or your vacation property if you just used it for an annual vacation. Really? That's fine. Really? Yep. And the only time that that vacation home would not be, uh, would not count if it was primarily an income producing rental property right, to you. Right. So if you were there for, you know, two weeks and you were renting it for, you know, 40 weeks, then you're going to be offside. Right. All right. Um, but there are many types of properties. 
that can qualify as a principal residence, including your house, your apartment or condo, a cottage, and then we get into some interesting ones. Uh, it could be a mobile home. Tent. <laughs> I'm not sure if a mobile home technically goes up in value. Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that later. Uh, a trailer. Yeah. A houseboat. Now, a houseboat is something we wouldn't think about here in Ontario, but in Vancouver, yeah, very many people's properties mm-hmm. are houses floating on the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so a houseboat, uh, a farm, and or a share in a co-op housing corporation. And for farms or even a large home, the uh, principal residence would apply to the first half hectare of land. And uh, in some cases, that can include an excess of half an acre or half a hectare, sorry, uh, the surrounding land. For example, if there was a driveway access or various pieces that were part of you allowing you to use the property. And Scott, it does not include your par three executive golf course at the back of the property. My putting green? No, that doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you can only designate a principal residence uh, in any given year for one of your properties. Right. And, uh, and now in 1982, we go back to way back and in some cases that this is a scenario where people have owned properties that long for sure, but spouses could basically double up on the principal residence exemption prior to 1982. You could have two. Um, so you don't, again, you don't have to designate, do this designation process until you sell your home or sell your property. And, uh, and that's when you would start to go through the calculation. And you report it on Schedule 3, which is a capital gains election form. And basically, if you don't owe any tax, you're fine. It's your only home you've ever had. You report it on Schedule 3, and then that's fine. It's done. But if you do have a gain that's partially, only partially exempt, then you have to fill out a new form called a T-2091, the designation of property as a principal residence. And that will allow you to now designate which years you're going to specify as your principal residence. And... Um, you know, so I guess to make the decision as to if you own two properties, what are you going, which one is going to be the principal residence? You really want to understand the number of years that you're going to continue to own your second home, mm-hmm. right? And the future gain on the second home. <coughs> Pardon me. So if I'm living in the city and I've got a cottage in the, in the country and I've decided I'm going to sell the cottage in the country. The question is, you know, how many years am I going to stay in my city home and what would be the future value of the city home, right? Right? Because there may be cases where it makes sense to prepay or pay the tax on the on the gains on the cottage because the gains on the city home may end up being more. Larger, yeah. And sometimes this is flip-flopped, right? Yeah. Because there's been periods where cottages have gone up faster than the city homes and then there's periods where the city homes have gone up faster than yeah. the cottages as well. So let's just take a quick example. Uh, Anne and Henry, they're married. And they own two homes that could qualify as a principal residence for all the years of ownership. They got their city home and their vacation home, and they purchased the city home 10 years ago and the vacation property five years ago. Their marginal tax rate's 40%, and they're both residents of Canada. Uh, Anne and Henry are selling the vacation property today, and they're going to realize a capital gain of $100,000. They're not buying a replacement vacation property, and they expect to continue to live in their city home for another 10 years. And when they sell it 10 years from now, the gain from now would be $250,000, okay? So what are their choices? Choice one is they uh, on the sale of the vacation home, uh, they could designate it as the principal residence for the five years that they had it, and then they could 
they'll be able to designate the city home for the 15 years that they had it. So on the vacation property, the sale, the gain was a hundred grand. So that means they'll have a tax bill because it all qualifies as principal residence of zero. And on the city home, when they sell it 10 years from now, the gain is uh, 250,000. And that was for, remember they've owned it for 20 years now. And so basically 15 years principal uh, residence, five years not. The gain would be, or sorry, the tax-free amount would be uh, 212500 Their tax payable is going to be 7500 So in that, ex- in that scenario one, $7,500 of tax. Option two, they're going to designate the vacation home as their principal residence just for one year out of the five. And so they will get a break. They'll, get, they'll have to pay tax on forty grand. Uh, sixty grand would be exempt. So their tax would be about $12,000. But now the city home would be completely tax-free. So in this case, it definitely makes sense to claim the, prince, the, the cottage property for the principal residence exemption because it's only going to mean $7,500 of tax later on versus uh, doing it the other way around would be $12,000. So I had a, we had a situation with a client, and, and this is often the case, is the clients are trying to figure out, how do I get the cottage to my kids, to the next generation? And if I, if I give it to them now, it's going to be deemed to have been sold at fair market value, and I'm going to have to pay tax on the capital gains. Where the, where's the money going to come from? Can the kids afford to do it? And, you know, so the scenario that I had with the client this week was um, they're just in their almost 80 years old, late 70s, and uh, they've got two daughters and four grandsons. And the four grandsons are basically all in university. Mm. So the two, nobody has money to yeah. be paying paying <laughs> the parents for uh, yeah. for the capital gains tax or to buy this cottage. And the history of the cottage was um, they bought it in 1985. So there wasn't it was before that that double exemption, the double dip rules uh, for fifty three thousand. And in 1994, they were smart enough to use the, the lifetime capital gains exemption of $100,000. So they reset it and had it valued at that point. Uh, and it was valued at 180000 okay, in 1984. And for those listeners out there that do have a cottage, it might be good to have your 1994, if you did use the 100000 capital gains exemption at that time, it's in that tax return. And I find a lot of people are forgetting that they did this. We're, we're talking about quite a long time ago now. It might be- This was 94? 94. This when they capped it at $100,000. So everybody was getting their cottages appraised in that year. Right. And what I would recommend is put it with your will, that that particular year of tax return or any indication that you used it so that if, if there is a death, your kids know that mm-hmm. you actually did get to claim yeah. part of that gain. So they'll mm-hmm. pay less tax. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great idea. And so, of course, they've always also owned their home in the city in uh, in Brantford. So now in 2007, they put an addition on the cottage and they spent 30 grand. So remember now they're up to 180 plus the 30 grand that they added to it. So now they've got a cost of about 210,000 on the cottage. They sold their home and bought a condo in 2009 in Brantford. And they paid 220000 for the condo, and they claimed their home as principal residence for that whole time period, mm-hmm. right? Now, at the time in 2009, the value of the cottage was deemed to be about 400000 Now, you, 
there's different ways to do this, but you know, you, I think consistency is part of it. They talk about fair market value or impact municipal yeah. property assessment corporation yeah. valuation. The impact was 400 grand. Yeah. So and usually that's a bit lower than what it you can generally is lower, yeah. but to stay consult, if we're consistent, the impact today for the cottage is 600. Mm. So it's gone from 400 to 600. And meanwhile, their condo from uh, in Brantford has gone from 220 to 300. Okay, so an increase of 80,000 versus an increase of 200,000 on the cottage. So we're trying to figure out how do we get the cottage into the hands of the kids. And right now, if they sold it to the kids for 600,000, there would be a capital gain of $190,000. Remember, the cost base was 210. They're going to claim the cottage as principal residence on the uh, property increase from 400 to 600, so no tax on that. So they have to pay the gain on from 210 uh, on the 210,000 part up to the fair market value in 2009. Mm-hmm. That would be considered a gain. Taxable gain, 190, you pay tax on half, 95,000, which works out to roughly about uh, $30,000 a tax at a 30% tax rate. But they can structure the payments from the two daughters over five years. So now the $600,000 that they're going to receive will be $120,000 a year, $60,000 from each daughter. And the tax implications are about six grand hmm. on the capital gains. <clears throat> so in theory, they said, well, we don't really need the money. So all we really need is the $6,000. Even if they gave us the sixty grand. We'll just give it back sixty thousand minus the three thousand we need for tax. Sure. So we'll give them back fifty-seven. Yeah. So at the end of the day, um, they end up getting the cottage into the hands of the two daughters for about fifteen thousand dollars each. They now own the cottage and take over the costs and the assessments and obviously the ongoing um, property taxes, etc. And they've been able to spread out the cost of it and the capital gain over the next five years. Now, the flip side of this is that their condo in Brantford is now going to be taxable when they sell it. Right. And it turns out that based on their health right now, they're thinking they're probably going to sell that in a couple of years anyway. Mm-hmm. So the gain won't be that much. And uh, and really at that point, they'll have the cash to pay it yeah. because they'll sell the home. If the tax was twenty five grand they'll have the money available to pay the tax on it. And so it was really worked out well in terms of a strategy around the transferring of the cottage to the next generation. Thankfully, both daughters are heavily involved in the cottage. They both want it uh, yeah. down the road. And so it makes equalization simple. You just get it into both their hands. And both daughters had two children each. Perfect. So that made Perfect. it simple too. Oh, so I, I, I didn't just make it up to, yeah. <laughs> to make the math simple. <laughs> uh, but you know, sometimes maybe there was only one child or no children. And so this adds another layer. But as they said, uh, you know what, we'll let them worry about that. The yeah. next generation, yeah. no, it's, it was enough stress for us figuring out how to get it to you two. Uh, we'll worry about, you can figure out how to get it to your children. Let me ask a question here. Um, if you have a principal residence in town and a cottage out of town and you're getting towards, you're in retirement years and you sell your principal residence and then you decide to live at the cottage and maybe rent somewhere else or travel or what have you, yeah. uh, can you avoid paying 
that tax simply because uh, you sold the house initially, then moved to the cottage. Then when you transfer the cottage to the kids, it's your principal residence. I think that that was a strategy that was often assumed was a way to avoid the capital gains yeah. on the cottage too. But this is this is why uh, Revenue Canada has really clamped down yeah. on the principal residence exemption and the recording and the documentation of it has really tightened up because right. they realize there's been a lot of slippage yeah. <laughs> in yeah. terms yeah. of uh, properties going through the cracks to the next generation without ever play, paying any capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, that's closing up and it's not it's not a good scenario. But here's the other kicker too. Is, but if you've only got one principal residence, why would you have to pay yeah. capital gains on it? Yeah, it goes by years. Well, you, remember, you yeah, if you, if you own them at the so, same time. So uh, over the 25 years, mm-hmm. in the last five years lived in the cottage, then there'd be five, uh, 25 years right. that would you wouldn't have to claim, but 20, 25 years. You Tw- that's right. So the years that you didn't live in it. Yeah, correct. The years would be capital gains. And what it is, is a percentage yeah. Of, yeah. Of, exactly. of the gain. Right. Okay. So so if it doesn't grow at all in yeah. that time, well, then you're gaining a percentage, but right. you know, hopefully it does continue yeah. to grow. Now, if you renovate, change, whatever, those expenses go against yeah, the profit. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad not? you brought that up because what you want to make sure you do, and this, this gentleman, this couple kept track of their $30,000 addition. They have the receipts, yeah. but make sure you're keeping all your receipts for anything you do at your home in the city because that may be required to bump up the cost base in case you decide to pay tax on the home in the city mm-hmm. instead of the cottage. Mm-hmm. And too often we always think, oh, keep the receipts for the cottage, keep the receipts for the cottage, never thinking about keeping the receipts for the city right. because it might make more sense tax-wise to claim the city property uh, to uh, as your uh, as a sorry, claim the cottage property as principal residence, now you need to figure out how much tax to pay on your city home. Right. And anything that you've put into it on addition-wise is going to help reduce the tax there. Right. And, and having a, you know, with today's technology, taking a picture of the receipts and mm-hmm. having just a file with the receipts yeah. is probably the more organized way. Plus, they don't fade. Yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah good point. <laughs> I've seen some of these clients of mine and they're looking at them and they can barely make them out. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, they know uh, it, it's one of those emotional assets that it's gonna come back and you're having enjoying it the whole time, but there's a tax cost. And again, like Andy and I always do, is trying to minimize your tax. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website, andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And take a peek at the website, Andy and Don, all one word, andyanddon.com. You can ask a listener, you can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button and also listen to old shows. Well, this should be an interesting topic. Are pot stocks too high? <laughs> Play on words here? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they're all of a sudden starting, I'm starting to get more questions about them again. And we are not experts in stocks. We don't know one, what stock to buy, but we did. I believe through. the mayor's involved in this too. I wouldn't be surprised. It's in terms of? Investment. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of them out there. There's, in fact, there's even a mutual fund or an ETF exchange traded fund on pot stocks now which tries to limit the risks. So that way maybe you get the, the bad ones and the good ones and maybe 
you know, they'll just take off. And I guess it's kind of interesting. I didn't hear much about them six months ago, but all of a sudden the price has gone up a lot in the last six months. Mm-hmm. And wow, we start hearing about them again. Now it's always after they've gone up, we hear yeah. about them. Yeah. Okay. Now going through this, it's interesting. So again, very, very hot topic. Um, ever since, you know, the Liberal government announced that they'll be making it legal for recreational use, they went up immediately after that. So had you bought them perhaps that day, yeah. you would have done pretty good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. back a couple of years ago. But they're extremely speculative. Um, we certainly don't recommend them at all, as does our security specialist. They have no track record or earnings. Just because it's so new, they don't recommend it? or There's no earnings. There's they, nothing there yet. Yeah, yeah. they're actually losing money at this stage, mm-hmm. hoping that they will eventually make money. There's one actually that does have earnings, and it was Alfria. And it had a small earnings. And just to put it in perspective, a price earnings ratio is the price divided by its earnings. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a fairly highly priced stock would be about 25 times earnings. Right. Okay. So some of like maybe, you know, I'm not sure where Google is or, or you know, some of the bigger ones. But 25 is considered high. 16 is kind of in the, in the norm in the stock market. 11, 10, or 12 is, is considered, you know, lower valued. Well, this particular one is 51.7 times earnings. So double what we would consider high. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't. what it means is they're hoping the earnings go up tremendously. Yeah, right, right. That's now, what they're hoping. Well, and obviously next summer becomes legalized. Will you see a bump then? Wouldn't that make sense? It depends. You know, you, there's so many factors. And this is where I f- I'm finding people are very, uh, they got the blinders on. They don't know if there'll be a big one, a big, you know, say a tobacco company come mm-hmm. in and say, you know what? We're just going to take over. Now we know the rules. Yeah. We don't need you. And they got millions, absolutely millions of dollars. When they when they take a look at a company, say Alfria, and they Where have, is that company located, you know? Because uh, I'm trying, I've done stories on the place in Smith Leamington, Falls. Ontario. Leamington, there you go. Because there's another big one in Smith Falls, which is where the old Hershey plant used to be. I believe right. it's either Tweed or Canopy. Right. Yeah. Yes. Canopy's another big, big one. one. Yeah. yeah. And, and they were involved uh, way back when with the medical um, aspect. They still would be. And most of these yeah. producers yeah. are making it for medical reasons yeah. right now. Yeah. But the template's in place there for mm-hmm. recreation. To go a lot yeah. bigger. Yeah. And again, it, what's the barriers of entry? And, and there's a lot of millions of dollars spent to get it going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But you look at uh, the actual kind of gain that people have made in the last five years. After that bump, nobody's made any money. You know, you look at even Alfria, it, it was at about $8 a share. Uh, two years ago, mm-hmm. and now it's at about $7 a share. Mm-hmm. So, and that's two years later. Now, in the last six months, it's gone straight up. It went all the way down to about five fifty a share in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So if you bought at the peak right after, you know, the big bump up a couple of years ago, waited, you'd lost money. A lot of these people then say, that's enough of this. I've lost a third of my money. So if I put in 10 grand, I've lost $3,500. And now it's gone back up and hasn't quite got back up to the $8 mark again. It's at $7. And that's the best one. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the best one. Mm-hmm. Now you look at other ones. There's Canopy is another big one, and it doesn't have an earning, any earnings yet. Um, it had a net loss per share of, I think it was a 17 cents a share, which is not terrible. You expect a lot of these. This so much reminds me of the tech boom in 2000. That's what I was just about to say. It's yeah. very spe- speculative mm-hmm. at this point. Extremely. Mm-hmm. And I, lo- you know, I love the, uh, <clears throat> the symbols on the stock exchange. Canopy's symbol is weed. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's a, it's a bigger player. But again, uh, had you bought it right from the peak, it, it, it got there at about seven, eighteen dollars a share, mm. a couple of years, uh, just over a year ago, and now it's about thirteen dollars a share. Mm. 
and it has gone up in the last six months. So all of them have kind of picked up a lot lately. And there's a lot of other ones. Um, in this ETF that tries to buy a whole bunch of them, so you're not just picking the one horse. It's almost like right. buying, going to the track and buying all the horses. Right. One of them's got to win, and yeah. they better win big yeah. to make up for the other ones. But they're also getting into kind of subsidiary in, in companies that would help the marijuana. So pipe just, makers? Yeah, uh, pipe, yeah, that would be a good one. But <laughs> the Scott's, bong industry. The bong <laughs> industry. <laughs> Glass might start selling Doritos. <laughs> Doritos. Yeah, yeah. Doritos I'm, I'm buying Doritos here. chair. John, uh, Don, get me into Doritos, <laughs> please. <laughs> Scott's miracle Grow. Oh, fertilizer. That is <laughs> almost 10% of this fund, and it is Scott's miracle Grow is their fertilizer. Greenhousing suppliers. Mm-hmm. And in Luo, in in recognition of you know of a, of a great life of Gord Downey, mm-hmm. their whole company um, the, bought into this one called New, Stro- New Strike Resources, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting story. But anyway, its symbol is HIP. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And it was simply a resource company doing nothing for years and years and years and years. Said, I'm, you know what, we're not doing any well, very well in the resource Let's company. go into another natural let's, let's resource. Go into, let's go into <laughs> pot stock. We'll, yeah. we'll start our own grow-ups. And it immediately jumped to 40 cents. And it's now at 33. It literally jumped in that day practically. Yeah. Okay, and that's actually when the hip says we're in also. Yeah. And then bang, it's down to 30. Well, again, you're down to a 33% loss. So you're seeing these extremely speculative um, clients. I have had about three or four calls in the last two weeks on this. And do not bet your life savings on it. It is not a get rich. This is just like the tech boom of 2000. Do you think that'll change after the summer? And even attitudes of companies to carry these? Mm. I personally don't myself. You're probably five years out to get a good All idea right. whether it's really a good investment or not. And mm. I still I still think the bigger the bigger companies. It yeah. doesn't take much for them, such like uh, Philip Morris. Yeah. You know what? We're just going to take over the weed stocks. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. All right. The next topic uh, going to talk about Helping Canadians with Disabilities. Oh, good idea. Yeah. And uh, I can't believe, it's almost been a 10 years. Uh, 2008 was when the government introduced the Registered Disability Savings Plan. Mm-hmm. And it was actually kind of mirrored off the Registered Education Savings Plan in terms of some of the mechanics of how it works. Mm-hmm. But the RDSP, Registered Disability Savings Plan, came out in 2008. And there's been thousands of these uh, of Canadians that have taken advantage of this program, but there's probably thousands more who qualify and haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that I think you should have on your radar if you know of a family member or a friend who is uh, disabled and qualifies for the federal disability tax credit. It's kind of like a best kept secret still. <clears throat> it I, is. I, it is in many mm-hmm. ways. And I think partly because there's con- it's confusing. It's, you know, how do you work it and what's the benefits? And, and really it's a long-term investment. Not that it's just like a registered education savings plans are, right? You start them when your kids are young. And by the time they're, you know, 18 years later, they're starting to take money out of it. Right. So the RDSP, it's a the federal government savings program. And basically it encourages parents and any other person 
any other family member or friends can can contribute to this plan for a person who ha- who it does qualify for the federal disability tax credit and um, the the beneficiary or the the, the fa- of of the family of friends they can contribute into any investment and the growth on that investment will accumulate uh, tax deferred mm-hmm. and that's the same as an education savings yeah. plan the contributions are not tax deductible. So if you put a thousand bucks in, you don't get a deduction like an RRSP, and that's and and so it's just like an RESP, right? right. It's after tax dollars going into this. Mm. And all, the, all these acronyms, right? In, I know, know RSP, RESP, and yeah. but yes, if if you got to keep these straight because this is money that you're missing out on if you don't follow up on these. Yeah. So the contribution, but can be made by anyone authorized by the holder to contribute to it up to a maximum lifetime contribution of two hundred thousand dollars per beneficiary. Now that's something that's significantly different than the education plan, which is a limit of 50,000. So $200,000 can go into this. The, the government, just like in the education plans will match a grant, the grant program up to 300% of the contributions available, uh, or $3,500 per year. Mm -hmm. That's the maximum. So in the RESP, it's $2,500, or sorry, 500 bucks per year, 20%. In the case of the RDSP, 300% up to $3,500 for a lifetime maximum of $70,000 that can go in per beneficiary. So basically over 20 years, you can contribute to this plan and get the $70,000 that's on the table from the government. A 300% return, not a bad deal. That's a great idea. Yeah. So... um, Basically, then, what happens, you also get uh, the Canadian Disability Savings Bond. And it's available if your income is is lower than average, then it's an additional $1,000 per year. You do not need to contribute anything to the plan to qualify this. It's just an income-tested amount. And again, it's a paid over up to 20 years, up to $20,000 per beneficiary. So again, on the table, seventy grand from the matching plus another 20000 up to $90,000 that's available in this plan. So what happens now is the money's invested, and it's growing, it's earning, and increasing in value over time, and you have to wait at least 10 years before you take money out. That would be the recommendation, because you do have a penalty if you take money out early. Right. Okay? So... Uh, essentially, you then when you want to start getting money out of these plans, it's called a disability assistant payment, disability assistant payment or a DAP, and they're one-time lump sum payments that can come out of the plan, and uh, they can go to the beneficiary or to their estate, um, and basically they're they're they are restricted. Sorry, uh, they are restricted. To the plan value consists primarily of government-funded benefits. In other words, if you just minimized your plan all the way along, and most of the money in this was government money, then there is going to be some limits to how much you can take out. Right. Um, so there's the the DAPS, the disability assistant payment, and then there's also the lifetime disability assistant payment, and those are annual payments that must begin no later than the end of the calendar year in which the beneficiary turns age 60. So you have up until age 60 to continue to let the plan grow, and now you have to start taking money out every year. So the portion of the disability assistant payment that comes out, and that's based on the regular contributions that someone made to the plan is non-taxable. So remember, you didn't get a deduction when I put money into this plan for for my disabled uh, friend or relative, Um, and you don't pay tax when you pull out that portion. Okay. 
The rest uh, relating to the federal contributions and the income or growth will be taxed in the hands of the beneficiary. Same as an education savings plan. So the growth on the plan is taxed in the hands of the beneficiary. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the basis of that is that they either have enough low enough income yeah. or with additional tax credits, the disability tax credit, et cetera, the amount of tax they pay would be very minimal. Um, and the nice thing is that these payments that come out of the plan do not affect the eligibility for the Canada Pension Plan disability mm-hmm. benefits. They don't affect the uh, ability, eligibility for the federal income-tested benefits, as well as the provincial social assistance programs. So that's the key, no, because no otherwise back. income would offset those, and then you lose those benefits, which is why people really with disabilities never wanted to accumulate any more mm-hmm. than five grand in their mm-hmm. bank account. Mm-hmm. So this sort of sets that aside. It creates a, f- a foundation for someone to be able to build a pool of money that that person can now live on for into their into their future in retirement. Want to find out more? Talk to Andy Lister and Don Fox, Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And as well, don't forget the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can hear old shows there as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll see you next Thanks, week. Thanks, Scott. Scott. See you next week.